The iPhone XR is here at T-Mobile, and there's a whole lot to love. Like taking those perfect new year, new you portrait mode selfies you're going to share. Nice. It's the best way to stay connected to everyone you'll heart most in 2019. So get ready to fall in love with iPhone XR on T-Mobile, the most loved in wireless. Call 1-800-T-MOBILE to learn more or visit a store today. Good morning and thanks for joining us for this week's edition of Eagle and Biz Week in Review. I went with this short intro today, Bob, so that we could cover more news. Isn't that clever of me? Oh, that incredibly foresightful of you. Yeah, so we'll start. This Monday is going to be at the beginning of a new week for me. I'm turning over a new leaf. I'm going to be organized and on top of things. <laughs> or not. So, it's a good um, shot, anyway. It's a good shot. What can I tell you? to talk about today there's some uh, some interesting things i think that there's some um a pretty valuable legal insight in some of the news stories some of the things that happened last week so we're going to be talking about a lot of things everything from Suge Knight i mean who doesn't love Suge Knight right to uh, the people he offends Europe or the people he kills <laughs> it's true or hangs over a uh, balcony 20 30 floors up vanilla ice yeah. <laughs> That's right. But, you know, you're a big <laughs> fan, I know, so don't be ashamed. Uh, before we get going, I just do want to thank uh, two of our sponsors. We have two sponsors for today's show. One of them is Paychex, and Paychex is a payroll processing company. Uh, I've talked about before, uh, we have at the farm, they take care of all of our payroll processing, um, employment tax issues. I can't add my way out of a paper bag and I couldn't do, you know, employment taxes and that sort of thing. So they handle everything, and it's a really great service. They have given to our listeners an exclusive opportunity to get 30 days worth of free payroll processing. So you just try them out for free for 30 days and see if you like them and see if it helps your business. Uh, There is a link on our website, utlradio.com. If you click on the link, you automatically get your 30-day free trial. And the other sponsor I want to thank is Constant Contact. They're offering our listeners a 60-day free trial. Constant Contact is a great newsletter distribution, mass email marketing tool. Um, I know there's a lot of people out there, a lot of podcasters and a lot of people that push product and they use other services. Um, But I have used Constant Contact for years. I think it's great. It's easy to use. We've got our firm newsletter going out today, and that goes beyond They've got responders and all sorts of other things that are good for small, mid-size, online businesses. So, again, if you go to utlradio.com, it is right below the header and introduction on the website. There's a link. Click it, and you'll get a a 60-day, which is pretty big, 60-day free trial. Um, So we want to thank both of them. So uh, I also want to mention we did get some... um, Interest, Bob, you know, we talked last week about the updated website and the ability yes. now to record your questions for our Tuesday Very show. Nice the, stuff. Yeah, the, the business uh, and legal live Q&A. You go right to the website and you click on the record feature and you can leave your recorded voice message with your question right on the website. 
and then we get that and we can play it live on air. So um, that's exciting that people are using it. I hope that, it, that it's interesting and fun. I think it'll bring a different aspect to the Tuesday show. So remember to check that out. It's under the Ask a Question tab on UTL Radio. Before we get to things, I just have one, Bob. Um, this is something I'm sure we've all wondered about. I guarantee that we've all wondered about it. Whether or not the toilet paper is supposed to hang over or under on the toilet I have seen this. I have seen this. This is probably one of the more useful articles, uh, I swear to you, that has been uh, passed around social media. This is the most interesting. I was so blown away by this because, you know, I, I often fight with my kids. No, no, no. Put the toilet paper on the wrong way. And they say to me, no, 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 this is how it's supposed to be. Now we know for sure the question has been answered, right? <laughs> and it's like most things it's like most things with guys. Nobody checked for the instructions in the book. That's right. It just ah, we figured out. <laughs> Missing a screw, no big deal. You didn't need that one anyway. Still trying to figure out what to do with the leftover parts from the toilet paper, but uh, <laughs> Well here's it, it, Yeah, no, I, I this yeah. is great. They went back and they looked at the original patent that was filed for the <laughs> toilet roll roller, whatever the heck you'd call it, and they found out that in 1891 the patent was was issued uh, to a New York businessman, and he created the roll and the perforated paper, and it's supposed to go over, not under. So correct. Everybody, Everybody has got to go back now and take off your roll of toilet paper. Flip it around. It's got to go over. The the paper comes from the top, not underneath. Now we know. Only makes sense. <laughs> Nothing. I will. I'm, I'm one of those people that will, I don't. I'm OCD about it. Uh, I will get into if it's a public stall or an office stall, and I can get access to manipulating that the correct way and getting it going over. I will do it, but I will not, absolutely will not, put any roll on. That goes on the back of the toilet. That's not your job. (laughs) So so if you go to Michigan and you see a restroom, a public restroom, where all the – it's like sleeping with the enemy where he fixes all the towels so they're perfectly aligned. (laughs) You'll know that Bob was in there. Absolutely correct. (laughs) Yeah, that was – that useful information actually does come from. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and it's legal. It's legal because they want to the patent. How much more legal aspect or element could you get? So I, I feel sorry. Right. If you haven't bookmarked that as your favorite to correct people here on out, then shame on you. That's right. That's right. Now you look at all the conversations you can have at dinner parties. I know how the paper's <laughs> supposed to go. Oh, by the way, your toilet roll is on. Your toilet paper roll is on upside down. That could be like a new social faux pas. But I fixed it for you. <laughs> hey, Bob, Here's your here. bill. Yeah. <laughs> I only charged a half hour labor. I felt like an hour was just too much. It's too much, too much. <laughs> dealing in minimums. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Wait for the class action to hit. Yeah, well, there's a couple of class actions. We're going to talk about today. <laughs> yeah, especially when it comes to social media. Because I now, did you see that that uh, story in it on a legitimate site, or was it shared via social media? Uh, the toilet paper site. Yeah, 
Uh, no, I got that from a legitimate source. Let me tell you who it is. I've got it right here in front of me. It's very important. It's my Fox and why. So Fox News. That's how big a story it is. <laughs> when it hits Fox News, you know it's big time. Well, and the question is is whether or not they put a question mark and embellished a little bit on the story because there's always have you noticed the headlines sometimes have question marks. Yeah. <laughs> Create well, the news. <laughs> well, speaking of creating the news, did you see that uh, Cologne? I saw the headline. Um, I, I just couldn't stomach reading it. Yeah. So, well, it's day April first. So the, the circulation. Uh, but you know, they've got this line now of Burger King presented perfume. So, but I'm sure it's a joke. But it's funny because. That's being pushed around social media, and you need people talking. And I think at the very least, Burger King will get some people in for Whoppers on April first. So it's kind of a fun and interesting thing to do. But um, sure, you know, they've got it out on Twitter and and Facebook and everywhere else. Um, but Twitter, Twitter finds itself in some trouble this week. Yes, they do. You know, and it is just uh, again. I think I, I said it a couple weeks ago. It amazes me sometimes the things that employers will do. Twitter being hit with a gender discrimination class action lawsuit, according to SlashGear.com. Class action lawsuit being filed against Twitter late last week in San Francisco with a former software engineer alleging the company's promotion process is discriminatory towards women. And this comes at a time when such lawsuits are becoming commonplace in Silicon Valley as a separate legal complaint was also filed recently against Facebook by a former employee claiming gender discrimination as well. In the Twitter case, however, Tita Huang, or Tina Huang, um, who worked for the company between 2009 and 2014, says she was passed over for a senior staff engineer position for what she says is no good reason. Amid the details of the lawsuit, Twitter's promotion process is described as relying on a black box system where there are no formal postings of open positions. Instead, employees must hope to be notified of the opening by a shoulder tap or being told about it directly from a manager. Now, in this type of situation, an employee could go unaware of a job that they could apply for simply because someone in the know didn't give them the heads up. The lawsuit continues that the mostly male upper management makes all the decisions with uh, regards to hiring, and this creates an environment that favors men, whether intentional or not. Wang says that after she was overlooked, she complained directly to CEO Dick Costolo. Following that, she was put on administrative leave and eventually let go. Now, speaking to The Verge, a Twitter spokesman said that Wang was not fired, but resigned voluntarily after leadership tried to persuade her to stay, adding, Twitter is deeply committed to a diverse and supportive workplace, and we believe the facts will show Mrs. Wang or Ms. Wang was treated fairly. Now, isn't there just some basic relate, uh, labor relations faux pas set up in this black box system, if that's exactly what was happening? Yeah, you know, I think that... Um... You know, it's so hard to, to determine whether or not Twitter's actually discriminating or not. But what Twitter has done, which can I, kind of they, they see themselves over by not be. If you're going to have internal postings for job positions and job openings and lateral moves within the company, why not post on some sort of intranet or you know your company website and allow everyone to have access to it? Because that certainly sets up questions about. Well, who do we want to apply? And and if all the hiring is done by men, um, you know, you don't know whether or not. Look, I'll tell you this much: sometimes companies really do discriminate against people. Sometimes they absolutely do hands down. But other oh, times, sure. you know, you've got a, a plaintiff think to themselves, 
I'm I'm mad because this happened or that happened or you know what it's just not fair and I want to see what Twitter can pay me. I'm not saying this woman's concocting this story, but um, in employment discrimination cases, you see a ton of people that will call up and they'll, they'll get a lawyer because they've not worked now for a month or two or a year, and now they want to back and they want some sort of, of money because they're and they will try to look for discrimination issues. So it's really hard. That's why when when you've got a a, a possible if you're a plaintiff employment law client or if you're a defendant an employer. You've got to talk to a lawyer right away because everything with employment law is very fact-specific. So the part here, Bob, when you were talking about the retaliation, you know, she fired for reporting it, there's a law called SEPA, the Conscientious Employment Protection Act, that protects employees who are whistleblowers, it's the whistleblower law, uh, from being fired for simply alerting management or company officials to a potential problem. So that's true, then maybe there's a claim. But you don't know if you know, you're just saying, well, I think you've got to you've got to go talk to somebody and lay out the facts and, and say, here's exactly what happened. Because these cases, the discovery, you know, you're going and trying to find information about what happened. These cases can last a year just in the discovery phase, the, the evidence gathering phase, because you've got to take depositions and statements of some of these people you know, Twitter's going to want to, if they don't get this right off the bat, Twitter's going to want to depose management heads and, and other women that are in powerful positions. And all that you have to do is, is show that, you know, I didn't discriminate against this person. There are other women in the company. Um, it was fair. Maybe we could have done something better with policies um, with respect to job openings, but it wasn't done in a discriminatory manner. That's what they're going to have to show. But the burden of proof rests on the plaintiff. So I think, I, I don't know, I, I'm not sure that the black, the black box system is not a good idea. But I don't know if it's going to necessarily win her the case unless they really are discriminating, which I find that hard to believe, a company like that. Sure, yeah, and you never know. And that's that's one good point. Yeah, like I say, it's, so you're saying it's not illegal to do it the way they're doing it. However, if you want to try to avoid situations in the future – establish a process that opens yourself up to allowing, basically allowing anyone who's interested the opportunity to apply to something. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just a lot of times what companies do, it's silly. It's, they, they don't do it intentionally. They're trying to discriminate, but maybe they make a mistake or they just don't think things through enough. And that happens a lot with smaller and mid-sized companies where they don't want, they don't have an in-house lawyer. They don't want that position. I and mean, that's understandable. A lot of times companies can't afford an in-house lawyer, but they don't talk to anybody about it. Maybe they'll talk to their nephew or their niece, or they'll talk to their accountant, and then they have all this advice about what to do, and it's not good advice. And the next thing you know, you're facing a lawsuit for something that you didn't intend to have happen. And the big sure. thing here, especially for smaller companies, even if you win this lawsuit, you are paying thousands of dollars in attorney's fees to defend it. So put the money in up front. And, and we've just, been talking. Go ahead, Bob. Oh, I was just going to say, actually, you know, in smaller companies, a lot of them don't have HR departments. The person you're talking about that talks to their niece or talks to their account, chances are they don't have one person that knows what to do or what not to do. And that's where it's going to be beneficial for somebody to talk to, like, hey, let's, 
even if you outsource to a lawyer or outsource to an HR agency, get something that's ironclad or at least uh, should hold up. And also you have some fallback where if something fails, the system fails, you have some recourse to go back to and say, hey, you said this would work. Now I'm in a bind. Right. Right. I even talked about them. They're sponsoring the show. But Paychex has an HR program that they'll do a lot of your HR paperwork. Um, if people apply for FMLA or whatever it might be, uh, or you can go to a lawyer or, like you said, a human human relations or human resources company. Um, but getting advice at dinner table or at the par- at a party, or <laughs> that's not the way to do it. Because a lot of times what sounds reasonable just isn't the law, and then you end up getting yourself into trouble over something that you could have prevented. No, that's that's a good point. Now, question on SEPA for you, because you know you're going to have situations where people leave a company, and right. possibly when they I'm putting in my two weeks, but when I do this, I'm going to burn my bridge. I'm going to send uh, an email to my boss's boss, blaming them for something. At that point, when a an employee has surrendered their employment for two weeks, saying I'm, I'm going to leave in two weeks, can you go back and saying? Based on the letter you have written, you are now viewed as a possible poor employee or um, or a harassing employee, and we, it doesn't hold weight with us, but we are going to sever you now. Yeah, you can do or that. It's going to get very complicated. No, you know what? You can do that, and it doesn't trigger SEPA per se. Um, okay. I see this issue a lot, especially when somebody gives their, their two weeks notice, says they'll stick around, mm-hmm. and then the next thing they know, they're out talking about the company or bad-mouthing sure. the company others. And then you know, you've got the company who says, well, we need to deal with this because it's defamatory and it's hurting us. And, and they'll go back and they'll say, listen, you, you said two weeks notice. We don't want your two weeks. Go. First of all, doing that's completely acceptable. Um, mm-hmm. The second... The second end of that is how do you deal with the repercussions for what has happened? And that's where it becomes quite tricky because it, it costs a lot of money to go after somebody for a defamation claim. You have the burden of proof. You've got to prove that. If you hear things out in public, you're going to have to, to find these people. You're going to have to depose them. And before you know it, you're $25,000 in. So sometimes... <laughs> It's the best practice just to cover the relationship and move on and sort of um, use your own and your advertising power and the way that you do things and the good reputation that you've built as a means of combating somebody that's going to go out and trash you. Because the flip side of that is, do you want to spend $25,000, $30,000 and get nothing in return? So it, right. it's a hard... It's a hard thing to do, but your question specifically, when somebody gives you two weeks notice, you don't have to say, okay, well, now I'm stuck with you for two weeks. You can very easily say, all right, we take your resignation, but it's effective immediately and move on from there. Not sure. Well, that's good to know. You never know. Someone may use that. Um, in more class action news, Xbox 360 scratching discs, never heard of this, has led to a class action lawsuit against Microsoft, according to winbeta.org. Anyone who has owned an Xbox 360 knows you need to be careful when handling the device while using the console. Moving or disturbing the console while the disc is spinning could cause the discs to be damaged by the optical drive. Now Microsoft is required to face a lawsuit concerning this design flaw. 
Customers claim normal usage of the device can damage game discs, rendering them unusable. Microsoft claims this only occurs when consumers are misusing the consoles, not during normal operation. However, according to the Ninth of the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Seattle, Microsoft must face these claims. Previously, the lower court had ruled that basically in Microsoft's favor, but uh, the recent decision claims that there was a misapplication of the law. Microsoft claims since only 0.4% of users have claimed of this failure, the issue is a result of consumer misuse and not a design flaw. The legal battle is not over, though, and time will tell who the courts basically say is to blame for the problem. Um, basically, Microsoft filed a motion to dismiss, I'm, right. I'm going to assume from, from reading this. Um, and they said, no, no, let's take a look at this. Maybe not everyone is talking about what is actually happening with your disks. Is there a design flaw? So where is this going to put Microsoft? Well, you know, this is a standard uh, sort of, of appeals process that, you know, we don't often talk about because you're looking at case decisions and looking at outcomes. You're not actually looking at the procedure to get there. So, you know, a company like Microsoft, to lose money in a legal battle for attorney's fees is not a big deal at all. It just, you know, they've got a reserve mm-hmm. set up. It doesn't make a difference to them if they fight legal battles. And they'll fight battles for the principal thing, whereas smaller companies just cannot do that if they want to stay in business. Um but what's going on here is, you're right, they filed a motion to dismiss, and the lower court said, yeah, you're right, you don't have a claim, Microsoft wins. But then the plaintiffs, the class action plaintiffs, file an appeal. And so, the appeal, you know, the way that appeals work, and this is what's so complicated appeals, is that appeals are based on errors of law. So if a lower court is brought up on appeal, it's because the the appellant, the person that is filing the appeal, believes the lower court erred in some way. It was a bad decision, not simply because they don't like the outcome, but because it was a misapplication of law, or they missed a particular uh, element of a claim of a law that should have been applied. So they're looking to see um, whether or not of the elements of a class action were properly alleged. And in this case, the Court of Appeals says, listen, we're not going to dismiss the case right now. You could still win, Microsoft, but the complaint was pled properly. All of the allegations are laid out, and now you got to respond to them. At, at a motion to dismiss stage, at an early stage, if you win the case on that motion to dismiss, first of all, a very small percentage of motions to dismiss win because primarily what you're saying is that there's not a cause of action alleged in your complaint. And most often, it's because poor drafting is to blame, right? The, the, the plaintiff's attorney didn't lay out all the elements of a claim. And so they get a second shot at rewriting that complaint and refiling it. And then if it's acceptable, the case moves on. So it can be more of a procedural device to dismiss. But here, you know, it was, it was taken through the appeals process. And now it's not over. It goes back to the lower court. And now they're going to have more discovery, more discussion, more negotiation. Um, I, I think, quite honestly, I think Microsoft might defend this claim because I think it's kind of bogus. Um, I've used, we, we have had a Microsoft uh, have products, an Xbox 360. And mm-hmm. as long as it's sitting on the shelf, I mean, 
We've never had. I mean, the, the, the disc scratching problems is because my kids play frisbee or something with it. That's where you get yeah. the disc scratching. <laughs> I was trying to figure out exactly how and or why you would possibly want to move the console on purpose. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, I guess if you've got a kid that's angry because they've lost a stage and they're yanking on the controller, I guess in theory. But I think all the controllers, for the most part, are wireless. Yeah, sure. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know. It seems hard to believe. Um, I, I really don't know that this has any merit. I mean, I guess what they would want to argue is that they'd want some sort of way to lock down inside the drive so that when you have like a portable DVD player, you've got to push the DVD down and it locks to the ring. So mm-hmm. I don't know. But I don't know that this goes anywhere because what they're trying to say is that there's a design defect in the 360. The fact that only 4% of consumers complained about that, that's going to play into point, this. Yeah, point four, yeah. Point four, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I don't... So percent. I don't think this is going to be... Yeah, absolutely, yep. I don't think this is going to be well, class. Is it going to be a situation, too, where through normal usage, this isn't a problem? I think so. I really do. And I think that once sure. they get through to that, you know, is this even a viable class? Because um, remember, you can file a class action, you can call it a class action, but until it's certified by the court as right. a class action, it's not. So I think it's that when true. you're looking, because one, one of the elements of a class action is numerosity. Enough people have to have had the exact same injury or damages. I don't point four percent. Like you said, I mean that's less than a percent. I mean, sure. folk, I said four. It's point four. I, I don't see that even qualifying. So I think this might go away, and I wouldn't be surprised if Microsoft fights it. Yeah, no, it'll be interesting to see what happens. And of course, you have, if you have an Xbox, just hang on and listen. You may get may get the letter in the mail. You may get a dollar, uh, man. You may get you may get one you may get four point four percent of that dollar. Um with with, with um cops in the news lately and we've talked about qualified immunity as before. This is a little interesting story here. No immunity for an officer accused of breaking ribs, according to courthousenews.com. Not uh, not guilty, just not immune. A Virginia Beach police officer accused of breaking a twenty two year old woman's ribs is not entitled to qualified immunity from excessive force claims against him, the Fourth Circuit ruled. The appeal by the officer, R.R. Ray, arises from a lawsuit originally filed by Amanda Smith, filed in the Virginia Beach Circuit Court and later removed to the Norfolk, Virginia Federal Court. In her complaint, Smith says she was cooperating with the officer who had shown up at her front door, or excuse me, the door of a friend's house on September 21 of 2006, looking for a delinquent minor when he suddenly grabbed her, threw her to the ground and punched her sharply in the ribs while applying his full weight to her back. That sounds believable. Um, Smith says Ray then handcuffed her, placed her under arrest, and then took her to the Virginia police station where she was charged with obstruction of justice and carrying a concealed weapon. All the while, she says officers ignored her complaints about the pain she was experiencing. Her lawsuit asserts claims for assault, battery, false imprisonment, and malicious prosecution. Ray, the police officer in question, maintains that because Smith resisted arrest, his actions were justified and that he did not use excessive force during the incidents. This uh, is being the case, he said. He was entitled to qualified immunity, and Smith's claims should be dismissed. Now, as explained by U.S. Circuit Judge William Byrd Traxler, writing for the three-judge panel, the 
doctrine of qualified immunity, quote-unquote, balances two important interests. The need to hold public officials accountable when they, arise, when they exercise power irresponsibly and the need to shield officers from harassment, distraction, and liability when they perform their duties reasonably. Viewing the record in the, in the light most favorable to Smith, tracks are held that a, response, or excuse me, a reasonable jury could find that Ray employed excessive force in detaining Smith. Quote, unquote, he says, we certainly note, however, that our conclusion that Ray is not entitled to qualified immunity at this stage is no indictment of Ray, who denies many of the facts on which Smith's claim is based. However, as the district court recognized, it is the jury's role, not ours, to decide whose version of the facts are correct, tracks are concluded. Basically, he's saying, you still may be immune. Is that what he's saying? But we need to understand what the actual situation was. Yeah, what he's basically saying is, and this is something that we've mentioned before, judges cannot decide questions of fact. Judges can only decide questions of law. So if it's a legal issue, jury's got to decide it. And so what they're saying here is, um, Ray tried to get out of the case based upon qualified immunity, saying that I acted under the circumstances, and the immunity is afforded to me as a public officer as a, uh, a, a municipal employee, um, I, I should be able to dismiss this case. I shouldn't even have to move forward and try to defend it because clearly qualified immunity applies. What the, the judges are saying is, look, there are factual issues here that need to be decided. So like you said, Bob, yeah, I mean, maybe you get out of this case. Maybe a jury says it was an excessive force, but we're not going to decide that because if you believe this version of the facts, then you did not act reasonable. Because it's not reasonable for an officer to go brutalize somebody and then claim qualified immunity. So from, I mean, with what's going on with the police and this, this whole, um, you know, sort of epidemic now that's spreading across the country where you see, again, it, it kind of goes in waves. Like every 10 years you've got something, you've got Bernie Getz, <laughs> And now we, we've got what happened, um, you know, with all these, these different shootings. I think that this court got it right because he should be held accountable for what he did. Because you have a badge, just because you have a gun, doesn't mean that you don't have to or shouldn't have to the jury look and, and decide. Now, maybe he did nothing wrong, but let the jury decide that the same way that a jury would decide those issues for you or me, Bob. And I was just going to ask, actually, is is whether or not maybe a year ago, prior to August of last, would this have gotten this far? Would they have? Would it even have gotten to the federal court to say this is a ruling, or would they have just, yeah, it's qualified immunity, next case? Or is or is that highlight? It's probably elevating the consciousness of the court system as well as people. I think it is. I mean, I used to defend a lot of these claims for police officers because they're all, it was through joint insurance funds. So we were hired by the mm -hmm. insurance fund to defend them. And so we argued these qualified immunity uh, issues. And I'll have to tell you that, that we had very successful track record because qualified immunity is such a high bar that, you know, even when somebody acted irresponsible, you were able to put in an argument. So I do think that. Um, people's awareness has been, you know, really, uh, heightened, and now they want to make sure that they are looking at everything before they just say, "Yeah." So, I mean, I think that this panel of judges did the right thing, partially because it is the right thing, and then I think 
secondarily because they don't want to have this on their hands. I think it's sure. past the buck and let the jury decide it. And you still don't know. The guy could end up having nothing happen to him. But I, I think that, that they need to be looked as well. You know, I read a really interesting article over the week about what to do if you have used your your gun in your house you know, that you are legally permitted to own, you have a license for the gun, and you shoot an intruder. What should you do next? And it was a, a very what to say when the police come and start talking to them. But what you get the sense of is that just because you use self-defense and you have a handgun that's licensed to you, somebody breaks in, somebody's threatening you, and you shoot them, that's not the end of the day for you because now the police are going to grill you about what you did, why you did it, how far was the person when you shot them, where were they looking to determine whether or not you acted in self-defense. So, you know, here you are a reasonable licensed gun owner. You're going to be given the third degree. Shouldn't we give the third degree to the police who are doing something similar? I mean, they're protecting the public, but just because they are public officials or police, does that mean that they don't need to be questioned and grilled too? I think they do. Well, that's coming, you know, obviously with all the video evidence that's coming out, it's becoming more and more um, commonplace to to see that happening. You know, hey, these is and we've talked about it before. Is there a different way to solve this problem, well, especially when it comes to the police? And in the really, what I guess, lack of a better term, the customer service, I guess, uh, aspect of being an officer. Yeah. And how you handle situations. Yep. You know, and yeah. the, and that's 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 you're going to see that more and more in I. I'm glad for it, and, and you know, I guess it's. But I, I don't. I, I, I be a cop right now? You are going to be put through the ringer. You are going not be going not going to be paid very well for the amount of training and expertise you are going to need to have to make a uh, lawfully accepted decision anymore. In this oh, it's, it's it's fortunate. It's unfortunate. I mean, I get the human aspect of it, but man, I, I don't feel sorry for stupid people. Yeah. Well, now, you know, they've got body cameras that, that's going to be implemented in a lot of jurisdictions, and I think it's good, but I, I agree with you. I don't think I'd want to be an officer at this point right now. I think I'd want to wait for things to settle down because, <laughs> man, you know, you're going to be... Wait until the seat's a little, a little less rough. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Oh, well... Maybe you may um, see some rough seas if you're coming over here to America, but doesn't mean you have to be paid poorly for it. Workers accusing a French bakery of fraud, according to CourthouseNews.com. French bakery in Los Angeles, Los Angeles, California, trafficked workers from the Philippines, according to them anyway, promising them jobs as chefs and managers, then making them do landscaping and maintenance for 13 hours a day for less than 3 bucks per hour, 11 former workers claim in a court document. Lead plaintiff Armita Alabado at Dow, which um, you'll have to explain that to me. I'm not not in the, the Latin variety. Sued French Concepts DBA Lamond French Bakery and its owners Annalisa Moitinho de Almeida and Gancalo Moitinho de Almeida as well. We'll call them A and G from now on. On March 18th in Superior Court, the 27th count. Lawsuit alleges human trafficking, RICO violations, fraud, discrimination, harassment, immigration violations, 
nine labor code violations, among other things. Now, Alabato claims that she and the other workers were promised jobs at Le Mans French Bakery of Beverly Hills and Torrance to be, quote-unquote, skilled bakery chefs and managers. But when they arrived, when they what they faced was starkly different. Workers say they were forced to work for defendants in illegal, oppressive, and discriminatory conditions as domestic servants, physical laborers engaging in landscaping and building maintenance, and retail bakery workers doing a substantial amount of menial work of defendants' French bakeries. Now, the workers arrived in California before the bakery opened, and they claimed that they had to perform months of manual labor at the home of the owners and their 17-unit rental property in Long Beach. For these tasks, defendants were paid barely more than $2 per hour, the complaint states, and during this time, the workers slept for months on the floor of a small laundry room in the owner's home. When the bakery's first outlet opened, the workers say they had to work at least 13-hour-long days every day of the week for as little as $1,000 a month, which basically comes out to less than $3 per hour. Now, to conceal ev- my first thought was, well, where's the evidence? Well, here we go. To conceal evidence of these wages and hour violations, defendants altered or destroyed the workers' time cards and told them not to accurately report their actual time worked. The defendants also demeaned and verbally abused their workers, preventing them from speaking in their native Tagalog tongue, uh, language and t- tried to isolate them from other Filipinos as well as local workers in the bakery. The workers say the Alameda's told them that if they refused to work under these conditions, they would each owe the defendants more than $11,000. Apparently that's the price of a plane ticket. The threats escalated when a state labor enforcement agency began investigating the bakery, the complaint states. Defendants threatened the workers and families back in the Philippines where defendants bragged about their political clout. The workers claimed defendants instructed the workers to lie to investigators and other government officials. And when the workers refused, they retaliated against them including wrongfully firing five of them, leaving the workers with no livelihood and too afraid to return home to the Philippines. Now, the plaintiffs obviously seek unpaid wages, liquidated damages, damages, treble damages, that's the opposite of base damages, statutory damage, and punitive damages. These people are, uh, this will be interesting to see if this actually is what happened, but it's probably not uncommon. Unfortunately, it's it's not. And, And I've seen it a lot where, I don't know why people are stupid enough to do this as far as bring people and then make them, you know, it's like indentured servitude. It's really, it's like, what are you thinking? I mean, at some point, don't you think somebody's going to complain? You just can't keep people that oppressed and and make them, you know, look, I, I know there's a lot of contractors out there that are on the up and up, but there's those contractors that'll swing by Home Depot or Lowe's, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning and pick up whatever day worker they can find. And some of them get paid good. Some of them don't. Um, But I think that, you know, that's even, I'm not not saying that's wrong, but that's even less risky than, than this, because we're talking about a bunch of people that they brought over here. They've come into this country, right? And, and they have these jobs. They were brought here, lured here, under the guise of getting a, a, a job that they were going to be paid, and now they're they're being asked to do landscaping and all sorts of other menial tasks. I think I think that this is one of those stories that you know I read and I say I believe that I think that that's actually something that that probably did happen because there's too many of them. Um, too, too many people saying it happened. Yeah. Yeah, and you know what I've seen before too. I mean, I remember years ago when I was a kid. Who had a job? Now, not not saying I was an indentured slave. Um, <laughs> I was I was working at this this florist. I must have been like 
17, and the owner of the place would have me go over to his house and landscaping in his backyard. Now, I got paid for it, but it wasn't part of my job description. And so, and he was a straight shooter, but I think that um, you do see that a lot. But I think, unfortunately, people that come from other countries, uh, immigrants that come here, they can very easily be taken advantage of. It's something that's really deplorable, but I've seen it happen. I've seen companies that, that they think they can get away with it, but they, they can't. It's stupid. Here's the question. Well, you know, and, and, and I guess maybe there's a line of indentured servitude that gets crossed, obviously. Um, but, for instance, I'm an employer, and I am, well, this guy here, he's a, he's, he's a French bakery, so he wants some, or you see it a lot of times in Chinese restaurants. I know I've, I love Chinese food, and I talk to a lot of the people that, that work there, and they've come from China, and they work there. And I don't ask the question. It would be seen to be rude. But when I'm an employer, and I want to employ authentic Chinese individuals to make authentic Chinese food, which I don't think is wrong. I think it's probably a good idea. But mm-hmm. can you sign a contract, per se, with the incoming um, uh, individual, say, you know, I'm going to pay $20,000 in visa fees and, and, and this and that and the other thing, and you owe me that money through working, and it will be deducted as such. Can you do that? Are there legal avenues to collect the uh, that, that money back from your employee? Yeah, sure there are. I mean, there are, there are many okay. ways where an employer can pay for your immigration process because you're going to be here on a work visa. And they could mm-hmm. say, we're going to loan the money out to you, but you have to reimburse us over time. That's completely acceptable so long as they're getting paid minimum wage and their, their wages are being reported properly. Then, yeah, okay. you absolutely can because there's nothing that says the employer has to pay for these people coming over. Um, where these people went wrong is clearly... They used to come here under the guise of getting work that they never really tended to give them, and then they get them here, and it was based on fear and intimidation, as opposed to listen, you know what you're saying is is honesty. You want to come here? That's great. We want to hire you, but you're going to have to do A, B, C, or D. Um, you know, a really good example of what you were describing as far as bringing somebody over to cook authentic Chinese. First of all, I have to say there's nothing wrong with a guy named Vita cooking your Chinese food. It's just way <laughs> wrong. That should just be as long good. as he knows what he's doing. <laughs> I just don't. I can't. It's just got to be. You know, that's like going to a pizza place and and having some very bizarre nationality owning the pizza place. I still think that it should be Italian. I know it's just crazy, but uh, that's that's my mindset. <laughs> the best pizza in my area made by a former Iraqi. You know what? That's funny, though, because a lot of people from the Middle East do have really good pizza, but I like to think they're Italian. Not because they don't like that, it's just because I'm funny with food and, and culture. But um, You're you know, a food racist, Peter. Yeah, I guess so. If you look at, um, at Epcot Center down in Florida, part of mm-hmm. Disney World, sure. they have contracts with their people. Now, I know that most of them are students. But what they do is they want only um, authentic Norwegians or real Canadian or, you know, whatever the, the, the place is. China, interesting in Epcot because China still being communist, 
there's a lot of restrictions with what goes on there and how that's staffed and whatnot. But um, it's a really kind of good model because those people that come over, they're getting certain benefits provided to them. They get schooling and housing, um, but they have to work and they have to do certain things. That's a real good example of bringing somebody over for a, a particular purpose. A, it's not discriminatory. B, I was just going to ask you. Yeah, there's nothing unfair about it. A lot of it has to to come down to honesty, and there's there's you know, honesty is very much lacking from the the French bakery here. They're just completely dishonest, <laughs> and that's part of where they went way wrong. Well, there you go. Just keep keep it on the up and up. <laughs> A judge tosses some evidence in a discrimination case, according to Court News, House, or CourtHouseNews.com. The Fund for Theological Education successfully argued certain evidence in an employment discrimination case against its irrelevant, against its irrelevant a federal judge's ruled. Um, plaintiffs James Ellison and Martha Wright, former employees of the fund, which provides fellowships and grants to future pastors and other prospective Christian leaders, originally sued the defendant for unlawful termination on the Ohio County West Virginia Circuit Court on September 30th of 2013. Now, they claim the fund fired them because they were white and over 50. I know a couple people like that. And as part of their case, they intended to bolster their discrimination claims by presenting evidence that other white employees were terminated after reaching their sixth decade. But the fund, which has had the case removed from federal court, objected, arguing that the testimony should ex- be excluded because the plaintiffs failed to show how the prior prior filings, firings, excuse me, were related to their own. U.S. District Judge Frederick Stamp Jr. agreeing, holding that the fact certain employees were white and over 50 were previously discharged doesn't prove the defendant engaged in the pattern of discriminatory behavior. It just happened. The plaintiffs, Stamp said, failed to provide sufficient context and analysis to demonstrate how those terminations of employees were relevant or statistically significant in relation to the plaintiff's situation. Further, those previous instances of termination that the plaintiffs seek to admit failed to show a connection between race or age or employment decisions, the judge continued. The semi-statistical evidence that plaintiffs wish to use is speculative at best. Now, the fund also sought to exclude evidence related to comments about workplace racism allegedly made during a sensitivity training session for employees of 2011. Ellison and Wright claimed that during the session, several employees complained that they were exposed to racism by fellow employees and that by by uh, Trace Haythorn, the fund's former president. Now, Judge Stamp here ruled that the comments described are simply too remote from the plaintiff's termination to be admitted. He went on to toss other evidence he deemed irrelevant to the case, including claims that Ellison and Willis, or excuse me, Ellison and Wright made concerning the fund's termination of Haythorn's consulting contract. Ellison and Wright say the fund cut ties with Haythorn because he made racist comments to other employees. Now, similar to other evidence discussed above, plaintiffs here failed to provide sufficient information to show as um, Mr. Haythorn's contract was terminated due to discriminatory reasons. Further, the comments between those parties do not relate to the termination of the plaintiff's employment, or at least the plaintiffs failed to indicate how it does. Accordingly, such evidence is excluded. Sounds like if you're going to go, you better have things tied up pretty tight. Um, and where do they go wrong in this one in particular? Do you know? Well, evidence is a funny thing because you think that something is and, and like like, I cut myself off all the time. How many times have you been at Thanksgiving dinner and you you hear somebody saying, "Oh, I've got all the evidence. I've got all this. It's all right there. I've got a great case." And you know, as a lawyer, <laughs> I listen to that and I think, "Oh, how am I ever going to explain to you that 
simply because you have something, it doesn't mean that it's admissible at a trial. And that's what it comes down to. So th- here's, here's the way that, that the court looks at it. And here's a good example, too, of where a judge decides questions of law and a jury decides questions of fact. Well, a judge decides whether or not evidence is admissible. So there's an area of law left for a judge to decide. So oftentimes, even in civil cases, you're going to have evidentiary issues that you might need a judge to address outside the presence of the jury because you don't want to prejudice the jury. And then the judge decides if certain evidence is admissible. Now, just because something seems to be relevant doesn't mean that it's always admissible. I'm going to give you an example of a trial that I had, and I'm going to you know try to tie this up neatly. But we had a case where there was a, uh, a motorcyclist who claimed a, a road design defect, uh, which caused her to have a very, very serious accident with very serious injuries. Well, what she wanted to bring in at the time of trial was evidence that the road was designed improperly. And in order to do that, she went and she pulled all these accident reports from years prior. So they bring in like 30 or 40 reports. And their their point is, look, look at all the accidents that happened in this exact spot. That's really relevant. And we want to show that the county knew or should have known because of those accidents. Right? Makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, I, I would argue differently, but I'll say okay. Okay, so, well, thank you for playing along. So that makes sense. <laughs> Sorry. That, that most people are going to think, well, yeah, you know what, it, it, it is a, a relevant, right? It's, it's the same location. It's people who had accidents. So what do we do? Well, we got all the reports, and as I start looking through the reports, remember, this, this girl was on a motorcycle. I'm looking through the reports, and I see so and ice. I see a deer ran out in the road, a turtle. There was really a turtle that crossed the road, believe it or not, and caused somebody to get into an accident. Uh, debris that had fallen off of another truck. And so you get through the 40 reports and you realize that none of them have anything to do with motorcycles or somebody not um, traversing the road properly. So we argue the judge, listen, while these are relevant, they're relevant in the sense that they deal with the same issues, they're not admissible because probative value out that does not outweigh the um let me put this in in non-legal terms because I'm <laughs> starting to make stuff like I'm trying to figure out how to explain this in simple terms when you have evidence a it's got to be relevant it's got to be something connected to the same or similar series of facts and circumstances but that was easy, yeah, a series of events yeah right but it's admissible only if it's not so prejudicial that it could influence somebody into to a way of thinking um, that, that becomes outside the realm of what this, the subject is at hand. So in other words, you're a motorcyclist. How can you say that the county knew the road was screwed up or designed properly because there was an accident involving lumber? The, the two are not connected and to allow a jury to see that second set of evidence they're going to think well they're not going to understand well there was another accident here and so that that creates a a prejudicial um, effect on jury so 
a judge will exclude that evidence. And so evidence that's speculative in nature, not hard, substantial evidence, then a jury doesn't see that because a judge can say, well, listen, it's so speculative that they convinced you one way. It's really not, it's not something that you should consider. It's not relevant as you might believe to be. Yeah, so it really has to have cause as well to the, to the outcome. Right. It's got to be causally connected. There's got to be a distinct tie. It's got to be admissible because it's relevant and its its nature doesn't create a prejudicial effect so that it's not, <laughs> you know. Well, that's why certain things like um, post-remedial measures are not admissible into evidence. So you let's say you own a, an apartment complex and you got um, stairs with a railing and the railing's broken. And somebody falls down the stairs because the railing was broken. And then you go back and you fix that railing. That person who fell can't say, look, jury, I know that this person didn't maintain the steps properly because right after I fell, they fixed the railing. A a judge would exclude that evidence because the idea behind fixing a problem is to fix it so it doesn't happen again. And if a sure. judge were to allow that sort of evidence in of post-remedial uh, measures, then you wouldn't want to fix your railing. And it could create other problems. So that's where, Con- is it, uh, is it Con- relevant? Consequently, if three or four people fell because of the broken ra- railing over a period of time, now you have pattern of neglect. Right. So if you could show that, okay. listen, there are prior accidents, that's a different story. Going back and fixing something simply doesn't create liability, you'd still be responsible for the condition as it existed at the time. But that plaintiff can't prove that that condition existed simply because you made repairs. Because that would be so prejudicial to a jury that they would find against you without looking at the issue at hand, which is what was the condition of the steps and railing at the time you fell. So that's, that's why it's excluded. And that's what's going on here. They're just simply excluding evidence that does not have that tight connection. And if they were to introduce it, it create a prejudicial effect and the jury would be swayed and confused and not focused on the issue at hand. Sure. No, absolutely. Absolutely. That makes perfect sense, actually. I really um, we're going to jump down. extremely wordy. I said, I don't think that really did. That was like so wordy. I started to lose myself in that train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, it's... It, 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 it makes perfect sense, and a lot of people don't tie one, two, three, four, five in the series. They want to jump right from one to five and ignore two, three, and four yeah. when it comes to order of events and when it comes to causation, I'm sure. Yep. Um, I'm going to jump, jump down a little bit. We've talked about this before. Uh, Nike has, uh, not, not this particular case, but we've talked about cases like this and making sure that you have your I's dotted and T's crossed going into something. Lawyers for the world's largest shoe and apparel brand on Monday, according to ESPN.com, filed both a motion to dismiss and a motion to prevent the brand from having to reveal specifics of its Jordan brand business as a result of a lawsuit filed by photographer Jacobus Rentmeister. Meester. In January, Rentmeister sued Nike, claiming that it was his photograph taken of Jordan in the 1984 issue of Life magazine that was used without his permission for the creation of the Jordan logo, which became known as Jumpman. Now, while Nike did not dispute that it paid Rentmeester for the temporary use of his photos shortly after signing Jordan to a shoe deal, 
the company asserted to the district court in Oregon that the photographer's claims are baseless because his photo and the Nike photo are basically, they don't pass the legal standard of being virtually identical. Now, Rentmeester falls far short of that standard here, given the significant and self-evident differences in mood, lighting, setting, expression, color, style, and overall look and feel of the photo, is what Nike is saying. And on the one hand, the Nike photograph and the logo on the other. It don't make sense, they're trying to argue. Nike also asserted that Rentmeester's claim that the way he posed Jordan like a ballet dancer is problematic because poses themselves can't be copyrighted. Now, Nike started using the Jumpman logo. You're very familiar with it. Everybody is. In 1987, after its deal with Rentmeester had expired, the company trademarked versions of that logo in 89, 92, and 98. For what he says is infringement, Rentmeester is seeking profits from the Jordan business back to 1987, even though he only recently copyrighted the photo himself, and copyright cases usually limit awards to three years previous to the claim. To prove his claim that Nike used his work to produce what became the Jumpman, Rentmeester has asked for all documents relating to the logo and all revenues and profits from when the Jordan brand became a separate division in 1997. And Nike says Rentmeester is also pressuring the company to get Michael Jordan involved and share any documents between him and Nike from 1983 to present. Now, to save the company from what it calls an extensive and burdensome fishing trip, lawyers for the company have asked the court to delay discovery until a decision can be made whether or not to dismiss the case entirely. The Jordan brand sold $2.6 billion worth of shoes in the United States alone in 2014, so you can imagine the kind of money this guy's talking about. You've seen the, have you seen the photos of the Rentmeester and the Jordan logo? Yes, I did. What, what do you think? They are, what's that? What do you think about the logo? Here, here's the thing. Are they obviously the same? No. Does one draw from the other? Absolutely. Apply. Um, now you take and apply the uh, the blurred lines verdict. What do you got? Sounds yeah. to me like a problem. Well, you know what's interesting? I think well, there's a lot of here, right? There's a lot of copyright issues that we've talked about before, such as when you write something, draw something, photograph something, you own the copyright. But you, unless you file it with the U.S. Copyright Office, you can't seek monetary damages. You can only file for an injunction. So here's a question that comes to my mind. Why didn't this guy go out and file a lawsuit when they first created the brand and say, whoa, I need an injunction here because that's my photo? He did nothing. I mean, we're talking about 20 years, and now all of a sudden he, he filed the copyright and he's looking for damages. First of all, sure. he's only going to be entitled to damages if he's even awarded anything, and I'll get to that in a second, since he filed the application, because that's the only time that you can collect damages. So all these other years, the bulk were like the top dogs, $100 for a pair, and everyone had to have them. That's when I think that really, really cashed in on the brand. Um, but I think that he's looking for some easy money. Maybe this guy, maybe he conversation last Thanksgiving with somebody at his house and they said, hey, <laughs> that's your logo. You, should, you got uh, all the evidence right there. <laughs> yeah. But I think that this will be dismissed. I think this is one of those where um, a judge is going to look at it and say, look, you don't meet the legal uh, standard or, or legal qualifications. The one thing that is interesting is that the logos are similar in nature distinctive, though. I mean, you, you can't look and say that, oh, wow, they're so close, I can't tell. That's that's the standard 
copyright infringement, which is substantially similar that you can't di- differentiate. But I have no problem separating them. I'm, you don't either, do you? I, if they're side by side, had you shown me Rent Meester's photo as a silhouette, I don't think I would have known. Right. And just that. And say, hey, do you recognize this? Yes, yeah, Jordan. Right, Jump. right, right. And then they say, no, this is Jumpman. I said, oh, I didn't know there was two different logos. But I, I think that they are similar enough. But um, uh, it's, I, say, I guess I draw it to that blurred lines conclusion. You know, here you've got an admission by Alan, Alan, Alan Thick, <laughs> Robin Thick, uh, that, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was inspired by this song. We used to listen to it all the time or whatever, but I didn't take anything from it. I, I've, I've heard it. Every blues three chord song in the world would be shot. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I don't agree with that whole verdict. Um, I think it was a real shot. It's not the same as a melodic follow. Right. And so well, and you look at you look at that case, you look at this case, I, there's similarities there, but uh, it's not for me to decide. Not unless you're on the jury. But, but though, <laughs> I, right. I, think, I think this, I mean, if you look at, at art in general and whether it, it's photography, whether it's painting, music, whatever it is, every draws inspiration from other sure. people. There are very few uh, brand new independently created concepts, works of art. They, they all draw. I mean, how could you separate as, as a kid being a student of a particular art style and then you evolve and develop your own, but you still have that, that basic um, understanding of what you studied previously. Um, you know, you grow up playing the guitar, and you learn all of, of, of the old blues songs. You learn Elvis Presley. You learn... How do you not draw inspiration? How could sure. you separate that? So, I think that the idea with the Jordan logo, it's really... It's a, it's a tough one, because it's essentially the same look with a different pose, but it's the same silhouetted look. Slightly. Slightly, right. slightly different moves. Right. Um, you've, you've got the arm up as, as opposed to the arm down. But is that right. idea something that you can copyright? Is that idea, is, you know, does that mean that, um, you know, I can't go and create my own silhouette simply because that idea was used before? I, I think not. Uh, this, this is a, a challenging one, but I think that Nike will win on this. It's going to be fun to watch because I, you know, agreeing with everything you said when it comes to inspiration, I think if you look at this and you look at the layout and you look at what the the the, the subject matter is, I, I just I think they're too close together. I'm, I'm going to have to disagree with you on that one. <laughs> well, I'd like to see where this one goes because it's it's you know it definitely is, but but then you've got to look at what I said earlier, which is why did he file for an injunction? Yeah, so long after. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that that's the other, that that's the thing that stinks about this, and it's, like you said, we'll probably keep it out of the courtroom. Is the fact that it's so old? Yeah, I, I think I think that somebody's going to look at this and they're going to say, <clears throat> you know, um, why didn't you do something before? But this also uh, is reminiscent of what Apple did. I want to say within the last year, Apple tried to um, trademark the photography against the white background 
You know, that's something that's a trademark style right. of Apple. And um, I, I'd have to go back. I'm trying to look now. I think that they might have granted Apple the photography, or maybe they did it to Amazon. I'd have to go back and look, but but this is something I'm going to check on. I think it might have been Amazon. Um, but it's interesting because that's a style that they were trying to trademark. Um, mm-hmm. Could you say that this style of silhouetted basketball player is is something that should be protected? I, you know what? I would think that this case would have a much stronger appeal, and I think that um, you know the Meester might have actually had a good case if this was fifteen twenty years ago. I really sure, sure, no, absolutely. It just comes across as being disingenuous at this point, but who knows? We'll see. Mm-hmm. We'll find out. <laughs> Speaking of disingenuous, do you, you of course, probably remember Dr. Jack Kevorkian? Of course. Of course. Who doesn't? Um, have you ever seen him in the courtroom? Yes, I've seen video footage of him, yes. And he, he's usually in a wheelchair, correct? Yes. <laughs> very, very well. Let me tell you, I played horseshoes with the man. <laughs> He's not Did a, you really? He didn't need to be in a wheelchair. Absolutely. A friend of mine uh, that I worked with, his parents lived next door to a house that Jeffrey Figer rented to Doctor Kavorkian, or had him live in it, whatever. And <laughs> I'm not going to say anything about what transpired between this, that, and the other thing, but. Uh, so when it came time to, hey, we're having a, a barbecue, come on over. Oh, this is my neighbor, Dr. Kerworkian. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's <laughs> no, hysterical. <laughs> oh, it was a lot of fun. I I let him win. Yeah, it's a good idea because you don't want to wake up dead. <laughs> That's right. Correct. Uh, by the way, where exactly do you have? Uh, but anyway, the relevance to this is Suge Knight collapsing in a courtroom after bail is set at $25 million. LATimes.com telling us that just moments after his bail was set at the quarter of a hundred million, former rap mogul Marion Suge Knight collapsed in a downtown Los Angeles courtroom Friday morning. Just bam, Matthew Fletcher, his lawyer, said he's unconscious right now. Knight was taken to a jail hospital ward where he was being evaluated, said Nicole Nishida, a Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department spokeswoman. Now, Deputy District Attorney Cynthia J. Barnes said she believed Knight was just doing it in front of the cameras. In court, Flesher argued for a lower bail mount, saying Knight was not a flight risk because he was recognizable. But Barnes said she didn't believe a $25 million bail was high enough. Wow. Um, <laughs> that's a lot of money. Yeah. To back up the claim, Barnes documented the death row records co-founders' extensive brushes with the law in nearly, not three, not 30, 300 pages of written arguments and supporting evidence, including more than two dozen police reports and an affidavit that implicated night and robberies, extortion, money laundering, assaults, witness intimidation, and battery. Barnes listed 31 incidents in the last decade where Knight has uh, been accused of acting violently or threatening to do so, beginning with a 2000 report, 2004 report of a woman who claimed that on Knight's orders she was punched in the face outside of a Four Seasons hotel in Los Angeles. She later refused to cooperate with police, interestingly enough, citing a fear of retaliation from Knight. Knight accused of deliberately running over Terry Carter, 55, and Clee Bone Sloan, 51, in a restaurant parking lot on January 29th following an argument on the set for a commercial about the film Straight Outta Compton. Carter then unfortunately died. 
Knight is charged with murder, attempted murder, and two counts of hit and run with an allegation that he committed a violent felony while out on bail on another case. The morning after Carter's death, Knight was arrested. Initially, his bail was set at around $2 million, but revoked on February 2nd after Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department officials argued that he was a possible flight risk and had witness intimidation issues. They also cited his criminal past. $25 million. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, really. Well, you know, what's interesting... He's got it. You know, I heard somebody ask me when we were talking about this last week, why would... Because remember, this is a, a motor vehicle accident that he's on trial for. Mm-hmm. Killing somebody in a motor vehicle accident, which typically is a manslaughter charge, um, because if you are negligent and you run somebody down and you don't intend to kill them, um, you could be found guilty of manslaughter, still go to jail. But bail really never set that high for these types of cases. And somebody said to me, well, why is the bail so high on this guy? And the the list that you were running through is the reason why. There are and I didn't even get specific. <laughs> right. Well, you know, if you remember, remember Tupac Shakur? Mm-hmm. Well, Tupac, who was killed, I, I don't remember the year, 2005 or maybe in the, the late 90s, Tupac sure. was gunned down, and Suge Knight, there's a theory that he was the gunman or somehow involved. So, I mean, this guy has a history of gangster-related behavior, um, and that's why I think the bail is so high. There are bail guidelines that are established in every jurisdiction, and there's an idea that the judge has in their mind because, you know, here's the, the, the guideline. If you are a first-time offender for marijuana possession, you would have bail set at X. And and you don't have to stick to that a guideline. In this case, the judge was, I think, so offended by Suge that, and his actions that she set that bail so high deliberately because they don't want him getting out because there's a good chance that he's really connected. He's got a lot of money and and is somebody that can successfully intimidate people. I mean, that can't intimidate other people, but he can. And so I think there's a good chance that he might leave. So um, that's why the oh, bail sure. is so high. So ridiculous. I mean, it's <laughs> ridiculous. And uh, I'm sure, you know, there was all kinds of why he collapsed. Uh, diabetes. But then I found that funny that he's, his name is Chug, Sugar. And he's diabetic, isn't that? That's just fun, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> it's supposed to be nice and sweet. <laughs> he, he was also possibly the major suspect in uh, the the Biggie Smalls. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, killing as well. Although he was in jail at the time, they trying to think he maybe reached out from behind bars and possibly influence something but yeah he's a he's got a few few bumps with the law but uh that gives him credentials right that makes him awesome street cred he'll be uh <laughs> be right. dog in jail but you know he it, oh kids yeah it's funny though because you know you don't these things really happen anymore um you know the east coast west coast sort of gang wars and but they do and um you know speaking of of that i saw i don't know if you saw over the weekend um, the Pope had given a speech about uh, accepting all sorts of people in the Catholic Church and some change. They should accept 
uh, people as they are, and he was talking about the gay and lesbian community. And then he, he started talking about the mafia, and he's giving this speech about how he wishes that people in Italy would stand up to the mafia. Did you see that? I did not. I was I was I was, I was el, up El Norte, so I, I was incommunicado. I gotcha. Well, I was, thought it was so interesting because you know I I think of Godfather, I think of Tony Soprano, but you know you sure. think well is is there really mafia? It still exists. But it was funny to hear him say that. So you know you assume <laughs> that clearly there's got to be a big mafia presence still around in Italy, and the same is true with I think a lot of the. Uh, East Coast, West Coast gang wars, I think that gangs exist, and I think that you just don't hear enough about them. We hear about ISIS, we hear about Al-Qaeda, but I think there's a lot of, you know, local terroristic-type activity that we just don't see. Oh, I, I don't. I, I, I agree with you 100%. I just don't, I don't want to say it's sexy enough, but I don't think it plays into a narrative right now for media. Yeah, I agree. I agree, because that's truly what the media is about, ratings, and you can sure. dispute that, but um, you know, you have to look at what they're putting on the news very cautiously. Why are they, what do they hope to get from it? Um, how much ratings? It's just like before a snowstorm. You know, They talk it up so that you've got 50 million people crammed into the local shopping uh, mall because they're going to be with bread for a day. So I think it's all about ratings. Yeah, no, and, and gang, gangs are a problem if people start getting killed at a at a greater pace than what they are now. And it's so I mean, you're going to tell me there's not gangs in Saginaw or Flint? Absolutely, but apparently one homicide a week is is an acceptable rate. Right now, if Suge really wants some attention, he should go and join ISIS because then, right? Talk about street <laughs> rat, right? Oh, exactly. He should fight against ISIS. We should enlist him. That's even better. Wouldn't that you be? No, I mean, we got, Kevin. Guys, an enforced enjoy what you do, possibly allegedly. He could be a great general. General should. <laughs> general should. <laughs> he would allegedly hold ISIS uh, convicts over the balcony. That's right. <laughs> allegedly. allegedly drive by shootings. <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> That's we're we're not in. You know, there's a, there's a saying in business, Peter. You probably know it. You put your aces in your places. We are not effectively utilizing our aces. No, absolutely not. <laughs> and by the way, it's Bob that doesn't like Shug, not me. Just in case he or an affiliate is listening to this show. I'm tight. Oh, this thing. We'll, publish, we'll publish a Google map to his residence later then show. <laughs> <laughs> Careful. Careful. If you, if you don't mind the smell where I live, you can come on out. Uh, let's just say yeah. we farm. There are some pig farms out here. Uh, but yeah, sure. no, it, um, all, all allegedly. Doctor Jack Kevorkian burying bo- uh, bodies in your backyard. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never tell in public. <laughs> <laughs> and that about wraps it up for the day, right there. Well, I think keep uh, this I thing down some... as long as we can get it. Yeah, I think we uh, we touched on some good stuff. I think that um, you know what was really I think interesting is is now some of these stories are really kind of applying themselves to areas of law that we've talked about before, and you can kind of see the interplay between an area of law that might seem sort of um, you know just academic, and then you bring it in and you, you make the connection. So hopefully that's interesting. You think and a that, lot of 
a lot of times people don't think about the application themselves until they hear a story that says, gosh, that could happen to me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, you could run somebody over and go to jail, get $25 million bail because, you know, you've got a, a bad rap sheet. <laughs> Who knows? But Prove intent. Yeah, you know, I think that, that stories like the photography guy and Air, and Michael Jordan with the Air Jordan logo, I think that that's a really interesting thing for people to look at because, you know, what could that photographer have done at the time that he created the, the design? And that's where the guy's probably kicked himself because he was sure. probably so excited to have some deal with Nike at the time. You know, he was probably a lot younger, probably just starting out, and here his design is picked by Nike. So who's not going to just say, oh, this is the greatest thing ever? But what he should have done is protect himself right from the beginning, and he did. And now I'm sure he is very, very upset about that, and that's why all this has come out now. But So it's that nice application that we see and, and things that you can learn, whether you're a small business owner or a large business owner. So, sure, and if, you, you're, you're, if you're in the business of creating something, you have to protect your investment in your product. Plain and simple. Yeah, and you got the time to do that. It might cost you a little bit of money, but think about if this guy had protected himself right off the bat. Oh my God! I mean, he would be looking for all this, this millions of dollars that he's never going to get. He would be getting a cut of that right off the bat, and that's the way it should have been. But sure. you know, when you listen to people at Thanksgiving dinner, you know what happens. Real quick, Peter, I have a question for you, and this could be okay. anyone, and you may or may not know. I have a friend of mine who has developed a product and has had two conversations with the Shark Tank. Um, yes. When it comes to unveiling his product, should he uh, should just ha- just making the product isn't enough. He should absolutely seek a patent attorney. Yeah, before def- even going on the show. Yeah, and you know what? I think that between a non-disclosure agreement, which is something that should be considered, I don't know. Specifically, I mean, we had um, we had Lori Cheek, who was a, a guest on Shark Tank. A Shark Tank. Um, she was really, I think, um, in the beginning of of the show, maybe the second season. Uh, but she would be a good. I could give your friend her her contact information. She would be a good resource as to what happens behind closed doors. Because I don't know if you come in and there's a non-disclosure in place where the Sharks can't take your ideas. Um, I think that the Sharks probably have the upper hand in everything. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, definitely, if you're going to go out and you're going to do something like that and promote your idea, you should protect yourself. And what you said was so true about a patent attorney. Patent law is sort of a special because there's a lot of scientific and mathematic um, you know, knowledge that you need to have to be a patent lawyer. Patent lawyers are not going to typically try cases. They're not going to be involved with business outside of patent law. That's all they really do is patent law. Mm-hmm. There's a patent bar exam that you have to take to be a patent lawyer. So it's yeah, patented. It, it's patented, patented. So whatever <laughs> he could do, copyright, trademark, patent, he should do before he gets on the show, even if it's a provisional patent, even if it's a copyright that's been filed but not yet approved, that all helps um, because I think that you do have that excitement, right, we're going to get on the show and, and maybe get an investment. And so you sort of let some of the loose ends remain untied 
And that's a mistake because if somebody who's smart, um, they're going to come in and swoop your idea up. Sure. Plus, you know, it's just the sharks, but all the, the, the thousands or millions of people watch that show. I'm sure that there's shark tank trolls that will sit there and, and say, all right, here's an idea, but now I can do it better. Or, yeah, exactly. yeah, just manipulate it a little bit and yeah. try to get, get away with it. Yeah, good point. Or a different idea because if it's not it's something that's not tangible, just a service, oh, that's a good idea, but what if I did this? Yeah, good point. Yeah, because there are some great ideas on there. I love the show. It is a great show. And, and we, had, uh, we had Mike Rudell who wrote the Shark Tank book on the Thursday show. We had Lori Cheek. Mm-hmm. And um, it really is a great show. And it's a good business show for people who are starting out to watch even if you're not an inventor, just to get some of the sense of how you have to be in business. There's a lot of people that are on that show. As a matter of fact, Robert is dancing with the stars right now. Not that I watch that show. I definitely do not. Of course not. Um, but he is on. Uh, and he is a more gentle, more compassionate investor. When it comes down to where he's going to put his money, he doesn't let the emotions get in the way. And that's just, just that in and of itself is important lesson to learn for young entrepreneurs and people that are, you know, trying to, to do something new with uh with, with business or their lives or whatever. You, know, you gotta have that uh ability to say, All right, I feel badly but I can't. You know, there's a lot of power in saying no. Mm-hmm. No, that's it's you got to protect yourself. You got to protect your products. So, just wanted to reiterate that fact because we talked about it before. But obviously, when it comes to something like the Shark Tank, I wanted to make sure that uh, it was, was yeah. put forth. Absolutely. That's what I got. All right. Well, that's going to do it for today. Just uh, thank again our sponsors, Paychecks and um, Constant Contact. You can find both their links on our website, utlradio.com. You get the uh, free from Paychecks and a 60-day free trial from Constant Contact. Um, just click on the link, so it'll take you there. And I want to thank them for supporting the show. Uh, we will be on tomorrow live, both on YouTube Live and on Blog Talk Radio, doing the live legal and business Q&A. Um, we've gotten some good feedback. I appreciate it. And we're going to see about maybe expanding the question and answer to uh, maybe make the Episodes shorter and maybe do frequently like two or three or four times a week. So uh, let me know, those of you who are our listeners, uh, what you think about that idea, maybe making it a 15-minute question and answer session done more frequently throughout the week. And don't forget to make use of the um, Ask Questions page on UTL Radio and record your question. We'll just play that right on the air. All right, Bob, do you have anything else? I am all cleaned up for the day. Very nice. All right, so that'll do it for today. Join me tomorrow live for Live Legal Business Q&A and me and Bob next Monday for another episode of Review. Thanks, and remember that there's power in understanding the law. Now, you can get a $20 prepaid Visa gift card by mail with the purchase of a Napa Legend Premium Battery. 
Its durability and power make it the obvious choice for people who hate getting stranded by a dead car battery. So pretty much everyone. The Napa Legend Premium Battery and $20 back. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care Centers. Limit two per household while supplies last. Offer ends 228 19